I wanted to thank the Lord especially, the Lord, for allowing me to come be with you for a few days. This has been delightful. I've really enjoyed being here. And I sense such a great grace at work. You know, there is really a, a lovely grace, an astounding grace at work amongst you. So thank God for what he's doing with you, what he's taught, where he's going to take you. My sense is anything could happen. This could really open up. And not only that, I think you have exceptional leaders. You know, the, the, the quality. Uh, and, and I'm not talking one or two. I've met a whole bunch of people. I think these are the finest people. You know, pity they're Americans and not Australians, you know? <laughs> Sorry about that, but you know. <laughs> Anyway, good, good folks. So thank you. And I enjoyed the day. What day was that? Friday. We spent hours and hours talking with some of you guys. Ken and Cheryl Gill are here. I've known Ken and Cheryl now some years. And uh, there are no finer people in all the world than Ken and Cheryl Gill. The honour they walk in, the passion of their hearts, the giftedness and the grace, but the way they love other people, on other people, there's second to none. And uh, so thank God for them. I come from a city called Rockhampton. In Australia, cities tend to be small. The population is small. You have in America, what, 350 million people? Is that correct? 350 million, give or take? Um, You've got a million or two illegal immigrants and (laughs) all the rest. Our population, 23 million. But our country is as big as yours. Australia, you know, biggest continental USA. So we've got elbow room in our country, uh, room for a few more. But um, Rockhampton is where the Tropic of Capricorn strikes the East Coast. So it's up in the Northeast. Yes, palm trees, crocodiles, eternal summer. Uh, Three quarters of the year, um, the most beautiful weather. Blue skies, little balmy breezes. We go out fishing. That's winter and autumn and spring. <laughs> Summer is something else. Anyway, you're all welcome to come. Um, our website is loaded up with teaching. Peace.org, uh, w.peace.org.au. There you will find over 100 gigabyte. Anything goes wrong with the website, you've got to reload all of that, you've got to work on your hands, you know? There's over 100 gigabyte of teaching and it's all free. You can download all the audio, the video, whatever. Um, all the audio, all the video, including all the ones we sell. Uh, you can find them on the website too. Lots of luck, you know, it's a huge resource. Uh, but they're not copyrighted. So um, you can buy one, you can make as many as you like for your friends. The books, that's a different thing. You know, yeah, we sell the books and they're copyrighted and whatnot. But uh, that's only because you've got to protect it in some ways. But we give a lot of them away. I get letters from pastors in Africa quite often and, uh, you know, it's the cry of the heart. They're looking for teaching and whatnot. And um, we will send a book. For me to send a book to Africa, the, 20, the, the postage is $20. If I send five books to a pastor who wants them for, for colleagues, it's $100 to send five books. That's the postage plus the cost of the books. So um, we try to distribute them. We're starting to, to translate these books into other languages. We've just had it translated into Spanish. There are more people speak Spanish as their mother tongue than speak English, even though more people in the world speak English, but it's not their mother tongue. And uh, it's a very important language. And all, all of the main European languages we will get it translated into because through colonial days, those languages are spoken all over the world. 
So we're working on that. The, the books are proving to be really important in terms of changing hearts, changing lives, changing the thinking of pastors, changing church life. I really thank God for it. It all came by revelation. I can say in all honesty, what is in those books I got from no man. And, and yet I've submitted it repeatedly to the body of Christ. You know, so it must be tested in experience and tested in the hearts of pastors and leaders. And I thank God it has been, it's proving really fruitful. So one book is 15, if you buy two, it's 30, but for an extra $6, you get all three. And there aren't that many left. We, we brought quite a few, but what you see on the table is pretty much, pretty much it. Uh, take a couple of minutes to just to talk about some of the, um, the uh, audio and DVD products. The, this is the community book, the third book, Apostolic Community, it's called Holy Community. It's really about apostolic life. The, the second book is about how each of us meant to have the spirit of sonship in walking with our leaders. And uh, that's a whole teaching and all weekend. You get those tapes, you'll get some inkling into that subject. But this book, Holy Community, is really about how through a work of the Holy Spirit, a whole church becomes a people of one heart and one mind. It's an astounding thing. It's a great grace. And uh, I'm going to comment on that a little bit this morning. But I did a whole conference on just that one book. And uh, there's, I don't know how many CD, uh, DVDs are in this thing. There's a few up the back. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, we took the, the principal six messages from the conference and uh, put them in here. And so you can hear a whole conference on that subject, but this conference is a little bit different because I felt so exercised over, scripture was quoted already this morning, Isaiah 11, two, concerning Christ, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of knowledge and power. Um, got that around, the spirit of counsel and power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Um, my contention is, as we move along, as the spirit of understanding comes upon the church, as, our, as we become a very relational people, as we really come into love, as we walk as sons with fathers, as the whole congregation, as congregations become a people of one heart, one mind, something dramatic is going to happen. That, that unity is brought about by a grace from the Lord called the spirit of understanding. It's the third one, that's the seven that was in Isaiah 2. The spirit of understanding is the grace by which Christ as a man, a human brain and a human body walking in the flesh could be so one with his father. I and the father are one. You've seen me, you've seen the father. I've not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I only say the things I hear my father saying and, and many other such things. That what, what, could, what could enable Christ to be so one with the father? And it was this grace. It was, uh, he, John the Baptist said he was given the spirit without limit. And uh, it's the spirit of understanding at work. It's when, and when this grace comes upon a people, this is what produces in us not just a good theory. We can teach a good theology of sonship, a good theology of community. We can teach a good, good Bible doctrine of why we should love one another, but it doesn't give us the power to love. But when grace comes, it actually gives us the, not only the power to love, but we see each other, peop other people differently. And a whole lot of junk is taken out of our hearts. I'm going to try and explain it in a minute. But the grace that comes upon us that brings about that, res that result is called the spirit of understanding. And it's one of the seven that rested on the Christ. Now, these graces on the Christ were seamless and they were unlimited. And I believe a day is coming where if, that spirit of if we will allow the spirit of understanding to do that work on us properly and bring us into the relationships of love that we are meant to have so that we become a people of one heart, one mind, what is going to happen is all those seamless graces are going to come on the church. All the other six anointings of which at the moment we only have a skerrick. We have a little bit. We have it piecemeal, a bit here and a bit there. But we're coming into a day of seamless grace. And this thing is going to open up and we're going to see the glory of God upon the church in the earth. Anyway, what I did in this conference was I took those seven anointings and I 
took 10 minutes at the beginning of every one of these sessions and explained what those anointings were for, what, what each of those anointings did, how it worked in the life of Christ, how it would work in us. So I just tried to open up that whole topic of grace before we got into the main subject of, uh, of holy community. Jade, I think I'll give you one of these. This is for you. My, my brother thought, you know, if it's useful, maybe being a DVD, it might be handy if you find little bits in there that are, are good, you know, a little bit, just put up on the screen or play it to your leaders or something like that, very, very handy stuff. And quickly, these two, no time to spend, but there's only two copies of this up there, but you'll find it on the website, and I suggest, Jade, that if, if you like, I'll give you a link. Now, what, what this is, there's a whole hour here teaching on the authority of the believer, and the message is actually about how Christ, once baptized in the Holy Spirit, uh, made something more of it. You know, he, he went into the desert, 40 days fasting, prayer. Luke, got, Luke's gospel says he went into the desert filled with the Holy Spirit, but came out of the desert in the power of the Spirit. But a lot of us get baptized in the Holy Spirit. We don't do anything with it. We don't build it up. We just, you know, go out to ministry. Jesus didn't do that. But this talks about how he, um, you know, what the baptism of the Spirit meant for Jesus, what it's meant to mean with us. Well, well, once you get through all of that, there's a little bit tacked on the end. There's another 20 minutes that on the occasion I preached this in Ballarat, Australia, I felt to bring a word to help people um, in prayers for family members they were very concerned with. How to pray, say, for a teenager that you know, has been in the church, but they're drifting, they've got the wrong friends, they've got all kinds of crazy thinking going on, whatever the issues are. And there, there are th three major expressions of prayer. It only takes a few minutes. And when it's urgent, you do this three times a day, seven times a day. You'll find a couple of weeks of intense prayer. You can back off to once a day. But I've called it the battle for the mind, but it's, you know, for want of a better title. But it's really hard to pray through the issues of people that you're greatly concerned with. I can give you the link to that. You know, it's free on the website or, or if you get, oh, we have a DVD version, a CD version. No, let me give you that too. And um, another major subject that I can't open up here, but I just mentioned it. There's only a couple of these up there. Although there's a... Let's see, there's a single DVD or there's a two-pack CD about listening prayer. We discovered that silence before God is the single most powerful form of prayer there is. Let that startle you for a minute. Still believe in all the other forms of prayer. I taught intercession. I did intercession conferences, spiritual warfare conferences for years. And, and uh, that's a big subject for me. I do a whole school on that. But we discovered that, you know, you know um, along with thanksgiving prayer and worship and petition, and supplication and every form of intercession, there's another form of prayer that's hardly known in the Pentecostal church, and that is silence before God. And it's astounding. Silent, or what we call listening prayer, will get prayers answered that no other kind of prayer gets answered. And, uh, but I haven't got time to explain all that, but someone might be interested. And... Um, if you like that subject, I'll have to come back sometime <clears throat> and tell you all about it. Or, or just get it off the website. Saves an airfare, doesn't it? But, uh, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, all right, two things I've got to cover quickly. And the first is this. In, in 2002, the Lord took our church through three amazing experiences. We didn't see them coming. We didn't even know what it had done for us when it occurred. But the changes afterwards were just astounding. Although what I've just said is probably a little bit different about the first one. We really knew that had occurred. And um, I'm going to give you the context for that by going back telling the story of one person. We were, um, to all intents and purposes, healthy, alive church. Hundreds of people 
had built a great building, 25 acres, smack in the middle of the city, 1,000-seat auditorium, all air-conditioned offices, school, high school, primary school, the whole bit, staff, uh, you know, pretty good program. The offerings were great. Worship was fantastic. And uh, not only that, Sunday mornings, nights, the Holy Spirit would come in power. People would fall off their chairs drunk. People would get glued to the floor. People would get baptized in the Spirit. We're getting converts. We had baptisms. We had a missions program. And, and something I said already, the giving was good. So you'd look at this outward and you think, yeah, it's a pretty good church, you know. And people used to say to us, oh, you know, you've got good work here. On the inside, we began to feel more and more, this is in the mid-90s, there's something missing. It's, it's not what it should be. And, and the only thing we could put it down to was this, this sense that whilst we had really good people, they loved the Lord and, and they were worshippers and they were givers and all the rest, just like every good church, they weren't close enough to one another. That, that what we felt was needed was an intimacy in relationships. And we were looking for this thing and in 1995 started to preach for it. So Sundays, you know, we'd teach, I and my associates, we'd teach for intimacy of relationship and, and commitment in relationship and faithfulness in relationship. And we'd teach covenant love and brotherly kindness. And, you know, we'd, we taught this, in fact, we taught it for seven years. Not, not every Sunday, you have other things you must teach, but it was a constant theme we returned to in the belief that teaching it, preaching it would move the church into deeper relationships and greater love one for another, the, the binding of the church together in love. Not that we hated each other. Uh, you know, it was just normal, healthy, what you think was a normal church. But we thought, no, there's something else. And we called this something else community. And I can still remember sitting across the desk from my senior associate. We were commiserating with each other that we'd been trained by denominations how to build churches, supposedly, but we'd never been trained how to get people to love one another. We had to really build community. You mean anybody can hire a hall and put up a screen and get, get put out a song sheet, you know, take an offering, say you've got a church. No, we were looking for something different, something, <clears throat> something other. And we called it community. And for us, community wasn't, wasn't, didn't mean living in a commune. It didn't mean the rich putting tires on the car for the poor or, or, you know, somebody going to the market and buying a, you know, whole swag of vegetables so everybody could get them cheap or something. You can do all those things if you want to, but it won't give you community. No, for us, it was something in the heart. So this elusive thing. Anyway, around about that time, um, one or two new pastors came on the staff and one or two were fading off. And the two that, I, that joined me around 96, 97 in that period turned out to be, they, they were each other's brother-in-law. So in other words, one had married the sister of the other along the way. They'd known each other a long time. And, and I got two very interesting fellas, but I didn't know it at the time. One of them, the one who became my senior associate, tall, dark, handsome, strong, upright. Every beach he stands on, they think he's the lifeguard. <laughs> he can be wandering around the shopping centre and they think he's a detective in disguise. He's just got that look, that air. This guy was a perfectionist, raised in a very critical, judgmental family. And he was, so he's a performance-holic. And his attitude was, nothing is too good for the king of kings, therefore I'll try harder. And I get this on my staff. But his brother-in-law, his belief was, whatever I do isn't good enough, so why bother? <laughs> and he, he was, they both had a heart problem, right? <laughs> but I didn't know it. I mean, I'm young and dumb, you know? <laughs> 
And, and not only that, but my senior associate, one of his responsibilities was looking after the staff, you know, attending to their duties, making sure they've all got their jobs, including all the pastoral care and whatnot. So I wasn't even thinking about how well the third guy was performing, but it turned out these two fellows didn't get on very well. And not only that, I didn't know, but the third guy used to get offended easily, and the first guy, the tall, dark one, as far as he was concerned, he didn't want anything to do with it. And so he, the, the, the guy I thought was in charge of training and correcting never did any training and correcting. <laughs> so we went along for a while, right? This, this was the seedy early edge of all of this. You know, were we candidates for community? Turns out we were. But see, I, um, and we went through some troubled times in the church and lost some people. The Lord put us through that test. And we developed, <clears throat> even though we hadn't yet solved the problems in these guys' hearts, I mean, they were good guys. They loved people. They, did, they loved people, they loved the Lord, and they didn't mind digging deep in prayer with me, and they were honest. So we had a lot of good stuff going. And we would meet every single morning for prayer. We'd pray, we wouldn't do anything until we'd prayed an hour. And same whenever we met with the leaders of the church, we wouldn't even think about a thing or make a decision until we'd all prayed an hour. And, and so prayer was really carrying the life of the church along, and he was really positioning us for something better. We learned this... The, the, we learned that we had to build relationally. So by about 98, 99, because we'd had our fingers burned with some people had risen up, some leaders had let us down, we realised that we could no longer appoint leaders unless it was on the basis of relationships. Unless we could, they were, they were in relationship with the existing leaders, unless they were in relationship, a good relationship with the senior leader, we would not promote them to any position of authority. We put it to the church. We're still a voting crowd in those days. Unanimous vote from now on. Everyone would be promoted on the basis of relationship, and this is long before we learned the lessons of sonship. But our leaders started being together. So here we were. We were four couples in those days, full-time. And uh, we started meeting every Tuesday afternoons, half a day. It was easy to do because we homeschooled our kids in those days. And the reason we met was not to have a business meeting. It was just to be together. And we'd have coffee, and we'd talk, and we'd prophesy or, or we'd pray or we'd just share lives and stories and we'd do whatever we want to do. But basically, week after week, we were spending time together and building friendship. In fact, come the year 2000, uh, there was a Sunday where we stood at Felt Led, stood up in church, didn't have a sermon. Uh, three couples stood up. These were the three that were involved in the pastoral leadership of the church. And we spent an hour, each, all six of us, having something to say. And what we talked about was how much we loved each other, how much we loved the church, and we're not going anywhere, thank you very much. In other words, and, and unbeknown to us, but this put real security into the church, put some real deep foundations in the church. So we were, we were building relationally along the way. Not, we didn't know what we were doing, but we we're doing these things. However, my, my second associate, not the tall, dark, handsome one, but the short, fat, blonde, handsome one. <laughs> his name's Tony. Tony, whom I make famous all over the world. Because I tell his story, lots of places. I never knew that Tony had an orphan heart. What's sometimes called an orphan spirit. But it's not a spirit, you can't cast it out. It's not that kind of spirit. It's just that the, the way someone's grown up and their experiences in life, now let me tell you straight, sometimes it's only what people think that does this to them. You know, some kids grow up and they're hurt, they're abused, father abused them, and, and you get problems. And you can get an orphan heart 
because they don't trust authority. They've been hurt by authority. But some kids grow up simply believing they've been uh, mistreated or, you know, had a, haven't had a fair deal. They grow up with attitudes. And I, I discover in pastoral care that perception does as much damage to people as actual fact. And, uh, but either way, they're carrying hurts and beliefs and feelings. So an orphan heart is where the heart has been, you know, marred, twisted, is now faulty because of a belief system and the beliefs can be caused by things that happen or just by what they believe. So that, but an orphan heart will, will invariably someone who doesn't really quite trust, certainly doesn't trust authority, uh, often easily offended, often have a very low opinion of themselves, but they compensate that by having huge pride. Now, I didn't know Tony had all these problems and more. I never, we never even knew what this thing was. But there were some symptoms there, like you just couldn't rely on the guy. He'd let you down. He'd missing in action, often. And you'd have a meeting, and he'd run late. So he'd leave early to make up for it. You get the joke? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and just when something's over and you've got to pack up, clean up, you know, and, you, and you've got to, leaders usually are stuck with some things, you turn around, where's Tony? Well, no, he's gone. You know, he, he wouldn't pick up responsibility. And then he'd call in sick and be sick for three days. What I, what I never knew was he actually was offended over something, didn't want to show his face. But when he finally did show his face, all happy. Now he compensated for all this. What I never knew was that Tony had such low self-esteem. He had been raised by a father who, you know, this backhanded kind of humor that you get from the Australians and the English. His father used to say, Oh, you're useless. Give it here. I'll do it. You know, whatever. You know, this phrase, you're useless, was never meant to be a harmful phrase by his dad, but it was very unfortunate. Tony says if he heard it once, he must have heard it 40,000 times. Tony grew up believing. Now, his dad was actually, you know, a happy enough guy. Good dad, good mum. Marriage never split up. Everything provided in, in a pretty good home. But Tony grew up believing he was useless. He was worthless he would never achieve anything he was no good and of no value and he had this deep-seated belief but huge pride that you didn't know about and offended so easily and because of this orphan heart he just couldn't accept responsibility why he thought it was useless he, th he thought anything he did wouldn't be any good anyway but on the exterior how did he get on in life he was relaxed laid back Jovial. Tony was so laid back, he'd drift in late. He'd wander off early, never take responsibility, always smiling, always happy. And then if he was offended, just wouldn't show his face. And I never even knew this, most of this was going on. All I knew was you couldn't quite rely on the guy. And, but the same, the same guy, though, had a great pastoral gift, just loved people, would spend endless amount of time with people, encouraging them, you know, it's not like we didn't have a real pastor. In fact, he's probably the only real pastor amongst us. And uh, so where was all this going to go? Well, what I began to notice in 2001, 2002, was that Tony seemed to resent me more and more. And I said to Hazel one day, my wife, after one of these Tuesday meetings, I said, you know, I, I think Tony resents me. She said, what? Isn't it obvious? <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, 
Unfortunately, I'm giving you the long version. Ah, I'm trying to hurry. One day, January 2002, Tony knocks on the door of my office and said, John, we've got to talk. I just knew. This means trouble. So he comes in, sits down, and Tony unloads on me all my faults. How it hurt this person, beat this person up, mistreated that one, was harsh over here. All these long complaints about how bad I was. And I'm saying, well, Tony, either you're right or you're wrong. Either I've done these things or it's just your perceptions. I said, we could call in the other guys, if you like, and sit them down and and you can tell them everything you've told me and we could ask their opinion. But I said, I think if we do that, you're the one that's going to get hurt. He said, yeah, I think you're right. We'll we'll just talk you and me. (laughs) And so here's the guy that I'd never been able to put my finger on. I thought, ah, finally, this is the time. I thought I have to. I've got to confront this thing. So I said, Tony, you've got a really, really big heart. This was true. You've got a really big heart. And I said, that heart is just full of good things. But I said, there's a little sliver in there. I was exaggerating at this point, right? (laughs) I said, it's like a like just a little slice of an apple pie. <laughs> and in that little bit, you've got some things that are, that are not so good. And I said, there's independence and cynicism and pride. And, and he went to resist me. Uh, and he, he, he dropped it and he said, yeah, you're right, but I don't know what to do about it. And we had, we'd never dealt with an orphan heart before. And this was like, your extreme case, but fortunately it was an extreme case in a really good person who was called to the ministry, committed to the Lord, and he he would be honest. So he said to me, look, I, I need a few days to pray. So three days off, go and pray. For three days he sought the Lord. And the Lord started to open his eyes and show him things he needed to see. Do you know, the Lord actually gave him visions and a revelation And he came back and said to me, the Lord showed me how important it is that the church have apostles and how important authority is in the right place and that without this proper apostolic authority, the Lord can't do with the church what he wants to do. And I'm thinking, why did the Lord show him that? Why didn't the Lord just show him what was wrong with his heart? (laughs) But I realized later, this was a primary lesson for someone with an orphan heart, right? You've got to understand the value of authority because the big deal is, authority figures, anyone with this kind of heart is going to sooner or later get offended. Now what happens is people come in, they join churches and when they come in the door, oh, this is a wonderful place. Within a year or two years, they're going out the door, running the place down. There's no love in this place and it's all the senior pastor's fault. Now when you're an orphan heart, it's always the senior pastor's fault. And so... um, and I've told this story lots of places and invariably somebody come to me, usually some fellow come to me after the meeting and say, quick, pray for me, I'm Tony. <laughs> they're, they're everywhere, right? But, but a certain amount of this orphan heart gets into more of us than we like to think. A little bit of it, right? So here's Tony with his cynicism and all the rest. So the process of healing had begun by getting Tony to think right. And I discovered that half the battle is getting people to say, that's my problem. It needs healing because it can be hard to heal, but, but you've got it. There's got to be admission. You know, there's got to be acceptance. That is my problem. And then you can honestly start seeking the Lord. It's pretty much the same with any healing. You know, you've got to confess. That's my problem and I don't want it. 
Well, anyway, Tony, so Tony is honestly seeking the Lord. Now, astounding thing happened. In the March of that year, we had a family camp, and I felt the Lord say, don't prepare any messages, don't preach. And I felt the Lord say, don't prepare much worship. So I said to the worship leaders, look, don't even bother bringing half the songs you were thinking about bringing. And I said to a senior associate, I said, look, I'm just going to sit down and do nothing all week long, weekend long. Unless I feel moved to the Lord to get up and say something, I'm just going to sit there and do nothing. I said, so you figure out what to do with the meetings, but there's no preaching and hardly any singing. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I turned up and he'd put all the chairs in a circle. So we had to accommodate about 150 people. So three circles, three rows of chairs in a big circle. And he just got out the front and he said, uh, well, we've all come to a family camp with expectations. I'm just going to put the microphone here on the table and anyone who likes to get up and just tell us what your expectations of the camp are. When I started hearing people get up and tell us what their expectations were, I'm thinking, oh God, you know, <laughs> I hope, you know. But this turned into the most amazing event in, our lives, event in our lives. The Holy Spirit took over the meetings. We had the most astounding experiences of God. The most life-transforming events took place. And we never preached a sermon and hardly sang a song. We didn't pray many prayers either. Whole of five meetings taken up, two and three hours at a time, with just one person after another getting up. It was only the first three who shared their expectations of the camp. Then they be, the, it began to change, and people just began to share their hearts and their feelings, their struggles, their hopes in life. And an amazing thing took place. As the camp went on, what came to light was the problem of the prodigal son who went back to his father but said, treat me like one of your hired slaves. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the realization that so many people come to, come to God, they, they become sons of God. God wants to give them the ring and the robe and put them in the father's house, but in their minds, they're living in the servants' quarters. And so that whole camp was actually about getting us to really understand that we are sons of the living God. So sonship was greatly established in us. And you know, it was as if, it was as if everyone in the church got born again, again. So that was a, a wonderfully transforming experience. I get out of the camp, go home. I'm on the phone to Chuck, my spiritual father here in Indiana. And, and I'm telling him, oh, I've had this amazing camp learning sonship. And Chuck says, I've been preaching sonship lately. I've never had more fun in my life. Never had people responding more. I think it's the same one, same thing, see? So I said, you better come here, preach it to us. Chuck turned up three months later, but he wasn't preaching that. He was teaching about how to walk with a leader as if with the heart of a son. And it was in this series of seven meetings three months later that in the middle of Chuck preaching about sonship, the road to sonship, how to walk with leaders, the heart we should have for our leaders, that the Holy Spirit moved on our whole church. We'd had the theory of sonship for years, but this gave us such a grace, such an anointing, it connected us. Um, but the, the outstanding result was this one. Up until that time, Tony had never approached me. I always had to approach him. I'd come home from being two weeks overseas. Other people, oh, John, Tony. So he'd come in the door and he'd be looking the other way. Because, you know, there was something on him. If I went over to him, Tony, oh, he turned, oh, John, you know. For the first time that night after the Saturday night meeting, soon as that meeting was over, the Tony comes looking for me, beaming, puts his arms around me, totally different man. He's been transformed by the grace of God. 
Tony had become a son. No longer an orphan. Delivered to this thing. Oh. And from that point on, Tony was someone you could trust. From that point on, people started to recognize Tony as a spiritual father. He'd been a pastor on my staff six and a half years. No one ever thought he was a spiritual father. No one ever respected him as a spiritual leader. But from the moment Tony became a son, people started to recognize him as a father. Within two weeks, people were joining their hearts with his. On the third week, I was about to go overseas again. The Lord told me, lay your hands on Tony and give him the same authority you have to bless anybody in the house. So the Lord started to give him things. Tony began to pick up responsibilities. You talk about total transformation of life because you've got to get that orphan spirit out of the heart. But the, but the opposite of that thing is real sonship. But you don't have real sonship if you don't know how to walk with your leaders and learn to trust them and love them and give honor. Thank God. Thank God the sovereign power in this thing. And, and not only the Bible truth, but it, it comes with an impartation. I'm going to pray and give you an impartation in a minute. Anyway, the, the, there's more to it all. Wonderful things happen. Six or eight months later, Tony goes on holidays. And he's away a month. And I'm in the hall of the office. Our hallway was about as long as this building. And uh, I just come out of one room and crossing him in the hall when suddenly that back door way down there opens. And it's Tony. Opens the door and here's Tony. Haven't seen him for a month. And I call out the length of the hall, Tony, hello, how are you? And he says, I'm still in love. But he meant, he meant in love with me. I'm still in love. And um, Tony has become deeply trusted and is a great man, great heart, great man. Now, he's no great preacher. <laughs> but he's a sweetheart. And I get him up to speak to the church. And he might talk for five minutes but he put some little ingredient into the heart of the church. It's like one of these little active ingredient things. You know, you ever picked up a bottle of ZB11 and read the ingredients and it's, the active ingredient is about 1% of the deal. And Tony puts his 1% in. It's all beautiful stuff. It is worth being sons. But there was a third experience we had. We didn't know it was coming. And this is, this is what I wanted to get to to tell you about. And I've got, still got about a quarter of an hour. I didn't know we were going to have another experience of God. These two were fantastic. And, and this second one so changed our hearts. I mean, I had a spiritual father. This was Chuck. I'd known him eight years, but I never felt close to him. I just knew, you know, I had an organizational chart and I'm the senior minister. And now there's another box up here, which is apostle and, you know, my father. And, and you know, you, 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 you walked in the structure of it, but we never had any great power in it. But that sonship weekend... I, just, I realized later my heart was as changed as Tony's was. Felt so close to Chuck's, we, like we belong. He belongs to us. We belong to him. Uh, Boyd got rich and we got so happy. But I didn't realize there was more. So a few months later, now do you remember I said, this is 2002, do you remember I said in 1995 we started to teach, you know, brotherly love, and, and all that, and we're trying to get people into intimacy of relationships with one another. Felt the church had to go to another place. Remember I said that? And remember I said we taught for seven years, trying to get the church into community, 
Well, this was, this was the seventh year. And even these other experiences of individuals realizing they're really a son of God. I remember some of those most godly women in our church, some of the most prayerful, some of my closest friends. Some, they're a bit older than me and they, they love us, serve us, pray for us. They were born again again at that first event. And then there was this second event that put something in our heart that caused us to be able to walk as sons with a leader. But I didn't realize there's a third deal. But we were still agonizing over the fact that the church as a people, as a group, was not in this deeper intimacy. And I had a dream in September of that year in which the Lord said, there is an anointing by which community is built. And so I, my, you know what my first reaction to that was? I said, oh, that means we don't have it. Don't have the anointing. Here were seven years trying to build community and it didn't change anything. And if you hear, well, there's an anointing by which you build community, then, well, we don't have the anointing. But my second reaction was, hang on, I, I've never seen that in the Bible. Because you think anointing to preach, anointing to lead worship, anointing to build community. So I went looking for it. And, and I knew what I'd be looking for, and I found it. And what I found was Pentecost. I found Pentecost all over again. What is it? You see, I'm looking for, I'm looking for a place in the Bible where God gives his spirit, that is, anointings are given, and it changes people from not being in community to being in community. And there it is. And the Lord opened my eyes and I saw in Acts 1, 2, 3, 4, all the way to 12, this anointing at work. Don't ask me how I saw it, but I saw it. I could see all the effects on the church. And I thought, this is astounding. And I realized, I didn't realize then, but later I was to realize that this was the spirit of understanding. But let's just stick with the name he gave me at the time. There is an anointing by which community is built. And I realized that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, every anointing, every grace from God, every gift was poured. But the core, the core anointing for me, the, the core anointing to which all the other graces and anointings were attached was this anointing by which community is built. And if you know anything much about the scriptures, you will realize the primary purpose of Pentecost is to build community. It is to form a people. The Old Testament Pentecost, the one that's the type and the shadow of what's to come, was what happened at Sinai, where he said, you're a nation, you're a people. And he formed them into a nation. It was a mixed multitude that came out of Egypt. They weren't all descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All the other slaves up and left with them. The Bible says right there next, a mixed multitude. They come to Sinai, you're my people. And that was Pentecost. That was the first Pentecost. That was the day on which 3,000 died, if you know your Bible. The next Pentecost, the real one, the giving of the Spirit, the, of which that one was the type and this one is the full fulfillment, 3,000 are saved. But Pentecost always has means taking a people who are not a people and making them a people. The Old Testament, it was only outward. They were said to be a people, but, you know, they weren't intimate. The New Testament Pentecost is all about making their hearts one. Now look at the evidence for it. 
Jesus walks with his disciples for three years and the whole time he's telling them what kind of hearts they should have toward one another. But it doesn't make any difference. He gives them power, they can heal the sick, raise the dead, but he also says to them, serve one another, love one another. Don't be like the Gentiles. Whoever wants to be first among you must be servant of all. And he teaches them over and over, be perfect like your father in heaven is perfect. But for all of this, he's rewarded with the fact that every time they think he's not listening, they're arguing amongst themselves, arguing about which one of them is the greatest. So at work amongst his own apostles, he's already named them apostles and at work in them is what I call the spirit of competition. But basically this is just human nature, it's striving. When you don't have this grace I'm talking about, the spirit of understanding, striving is still in your heart, even if you're a Christ follower. I mean, this ministry that Jesus had was a Christ-centered ministry. How could you? There are lots, there are lots of Baptist churches in this world that are Christ-centered ministries, but they fight with each other. And there are lots of Pentecostal churches in this world that are Christ-centered ministries, but they fight with each other. And and, uh, that ministry there was Christ-centered. Here's Jesus in the midst, and he couldn't get it out of them. Because the spirit of striving or the spirit of competition was still in them. Now, when the spirit of competition is in you, guess what? You're keen to get ahead, but you don't care if someone else gets ahead or not. You want to be noticed, you don't care who else is noticed. You want your church to have revival, you're not praying for the other church down the road to have revival because that spirit of competition is in you. And churches are full of this, which means all these Baptist churches, all these Pentecostal churches do not have what was given to the early church on the day of Pentecost. Come on, it's getting serious now including all those churches that talk in tongues, don't have what was given on the day of Pentecost. I hope I'm offending some Pentecostals. Because I've got, the reason for this is, I've got to get you believing in a bigger Pentecost. We're not turfing out the things we've already got, but there's something here that's much, much bigger and it's going to change our lives. Now notice this, those apostles competed with one another. I mean, here's James and John put their mother up to going to Jesus and ask if they can sit at his right hand. You know what, it must have been good. So in other words, they were, they were ready to sell the other fellas out. But notice this, from the day of Pentecost, they didn't even think like that anymore. Something had radically changed in their hearts. They loved Jesus as much before as they loved him after, so it wasn't that. Here's the deal. Previous to the day of Pentecost, they loved Jesus, but they didn't love each other. Previously to the day of Pentecost, they served Jesus, but they didn't serve each other. And previously to the day of Pentecost, they were willing, they said, to lay down their lives for Jesus. After the day of Pentecost, they were willing to lay down their lives for each other. Now listen, that's a big one. 
Before the day of Pentecost, willing to lay down their lives for Jesus. After the day of Pentecost, willing to lay down their lives for each other. Pentecost is meant to make that kind of difference. 50 years before Azusa Street, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, had been a Methodist minister, preached emphatically and widely all over the world what he called the mighty Pentecostal baptism of the Holy Spirit. They didn't believe in tongues and healing and prophecy, and when that came along later, they rejected it. But they believed in this mighty Pentecostal baptism of the Spirit. You could wait on God. In fact, they would wait on God all Friday nights in prayer, every Friday night, and they'd get rebaptized in the Holy Spirit every Friday night. Great power would fall on those early Salvation Army prayer meetings. What they believed was you waited on God, you would be endued with power from on high and it would give you power for two things. Power to live a holy life and power to win souls. And guess what the Salvation Army was really, really, really good at for 50 or 80 years. They brought millions and millions of people to Christ all over the world. William Booth went in 20... um, In 25 years, he went from being one evangelist to being 10,000 evangelists in 80 nations, and they brought millions to Christ. But they lived the most exemplary lives, the kind of which you will not read about in other movements. Not just one or two, hundreds, thousands of them live such exemplary lives of holiness and sacrifice and service. Astounding stuff. And it all came from their version of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, their version of Pentecost. But Azusa Street comes along and another version of Pentecost emerges, a wonderful one, that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today. There is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. We wait on God, the power falls on us and we speak in tongues and prophesy and heal the sick. And it's true. And so Azusa Street breaks out, spreads throughout the world. Today, how many million? 500 million, seven, 800 million? A lot, of, a lot of people now with this kind of baptism of the Spirit, moving in the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit. We've had a wonderful hundred years. But I have good news. Pentecost is both of those things. You can take William Booth's version. You can take the Azusa Street version. But it's bigger. And now we've got to find... The third wave, you know, the real third wave. (laughs) Another version of Pentecost that doesn't take any of that out, but says, oh, hang on, there's something here much, much bigger. Because Pentecost at its core is meant to so change our hearts, so change the way we see each other and walk together. Acts 4.32, this is the telling verse that followed Pentecost. Listen, Listen carefully. All of the people were of one heart and one mind. That's the state of the church when you have the real Pentecost. We're going to go back to praying. What what I'm really saying is there's a missing anointing. Listen, when I got this word from the Lord, there's an anointing by which community is built. And I said, well, we don't have it. Oh, where is it? And I found it. I went to my church the next Sunday and preached what I'd found. There's an anointing. And I knew what to do with it. I knew I had grace to receive an anointing from heaven and release it over the congregation. I have learned that you can do this in a group. And if you think about it, the original Pentecost, it was a group, a group anointing. They all got the same thing at the same time. 
And uh, we had a bunch of people already baptized in the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues. All I knew was there's a missing anointing. So I stood up on that Sunday morning, taught it, and then prayed over them all, got them into faith. We'll be believing God. And I released the anointing. There was nothing to see, nothing to hear. We closed with a prayer and we had morning tea. <laughs> Just looked like any other Sunday. But I knew in my heart, I've released an anointing. It was six weeks before I had evidence of what it was doing. Tony, in his good stage now, Tony came in on one of these Tuesday afternoon meetings, just flopped in the chair, you know, still casual, still laid back, happy. And he's just casually talking and he says, you know, he said, I've worked for years trying to make cells work. I did everything I could and I just couldn't get cells to work. But he said, a funny thing happened. He said, about six weeks ago, the cells all of a sudden started working on their own. My ears pricked up. I knew it was exactly six weeks since I released that anointing. And I have to say to you, it's been like that. The something cut into the life of our church that was never there before. And I tell you the biggest change I experienced. A huge sigh of relief. You know why? Up until that time, I, had, I was working hard. You're under this sense of pressure to perform, keep everybody happy, hold the church together. And so you'd, you'd strive to please people. Like, uh, in other words, what you do is on Sunday morning, you'd wake up extra early, set the alarm, get up, pray, 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 prepare, prepare, you know, dress beautifully, go to the church, get there early, say hello to every single last person you could, then... Make sure the worship was good, the announcements were good, the preaching was good, the ministry was good. Then you get around and say hello to everybody again. Do you know why? Because you don't want your customers going down the road and shopping at some other pastor's shopping centre. <laughs> this, this, was, this was consumer Christianity. You're trying to keep the family together, but you're, but, but you're under this stress to... You know, and you concern, and and people drift off. We had, you know, every now and again, people would leave. Listen, from the time I released that anointing, people stopped leaving. We just didn't have the drift. Not only that, about six or seven years later, Tony said to me one day, he said, John, do you realize that from the day you released that anointing, the amount of counseling we've had to do of people in our own church has fallen to about one-tenth of what it was before. And then we noticed these other changes. Actually, the, another big change for me, well, one big change for me was I never set the alarm on Sunday morning anymore. And for a while, the pendulum swung way over. I'd sleep in. <laughs> and, and I'd wake and, and look at the clock and think, ha, ah, the only time, jump in the shower, rush to church, no prayer, didn't even have a message prepared. I'm thinking, well, we'll see what happens. And... Uh, And they, and they turned out to be some of the best days we ever had. <laughs> some of the best sermons ever preached. But, you know, eventually the pendulum slings back and you get back to thinking and study and Lord, what's the word? You know, but we had, I was so relaxed. And none of that, I'd come in on Sunday mornings. Oh man, it just felt like coming home. And people, uh, you know, it, it was family. I belonged to them. They belonged to me. Man, it was like being in heaven. 
Anyway, I don't have time to tell you more. The book, I've got a whole book on the subject. Well, here's the book. It's only 50,000 words. And this book gives you a biblical doctrine of the spirit of understanding and why it's an anointing. Not only that, this book will give you not only our story in a bit more detail, this book will also interpret, reinterpret in the light of what I know of the meaning of what happened with Zinzendorf and the Moravians. That story is often told as an example of evangelism or as an example of missions or as an example of prayer, but properly understood, what happened to them is what happened to us. And I'm not necessarily saying we got as much as they got, but their story was very much like this. Zinzendorf, German prince, you know, he became the pastor of these refugees that settled on his land, the Moravian brethren, just a church size, you know, two or 300 folks built a town, the whole town's the church, but they were in striving. There was jealousy and competition and backbiting and murmur and slander and there was rebellion and false prophets arose and division against Zinzendorf. They had the whole range of problems that churches go through and Zinzendorf cries out to God and heaven heard his prayer and there occurred on August the 13th, 1727, an event that is known as the Moravian Pentecost. No, think nothing to see. No rushing winds, no tongues of fire. You know, no, here's what the historian said. At a communion service, the Holy Spirit moved quietly through the hearts of the people. But he said, we became a people who greatly admired each other. So before I close, I'm going to tell you these two things. When this grace came upon us, the missing Pentecost anointing, two things happened in our hearts. We didn't know it had happened, but it became powerfully evident it had happened. We were a different people. We we're pretty good people before. We're just better people afterwards. And these were the two things. We discovered that the spirit of striving had been taken out of our hearts. Just sovereign act of God. Think, how can that happen? But it happened on the original day of Pentecost. It was gone from the apostles and all the others. The striving is taken out. That spirit of competition is taken out. You know what that does? It, it cuts right down to low ebb. It's, it's almost non-existent. It's non-existent in most people. What's non-existent? Selfish ambition, envy, jealousy, wanting to get ahead is astounding. Oh, and a big one, expectations. Expectations of leaders. In other words, we, we expect other people to perform. We, you know, we judge they're not a good enough Christian or you know, he's not good at this or that or the other. What we found was all the expectations went. Our people simply do not any longer hold expectations in the heart. Now, you can get individuals, you, you've got to deal with the time. Every church might have its lunatic fringe. But, but we had very, very little lunatic fringe for a long time. This, this thing was so transforming. Now, I'm not saying the people were suddenly superhuman. They weren't. They're very ordinary people. These people still had the same problems at home to sort out. 
Same issues with kids and marriage and, and money and, and jobs and all the rest. It didn't, it didn't put a miracle into any of that. No, they had to still take responsibility, learn, grow, find grace. But the thing it changed dramatically was how we were glued together as a people. So I said two things happened. One, it took something out and it put another thing in. The thing it took out was striving. The spirit of competition went. And the thing it put in was we saw each other with completely different eyes. And this is what that Moravian historian was getting at when he said we became a people who greatly admired each other. It was love. Uh, I could illustrate it more, but I, I shall leave it. You can read the book. At least there'll be something in the book I haven't told you. And uh, there's other information in the book. Later, I was to understand this anointing that the Lord had called, there is an anointing by which community is built, is the spirit of understanding referred to in the scriptures. And the book makes more of that. I've learned I can release this anointing in other places. The amount of effect it has depends upon how positioned you are for it to do something with you. May I point out, we had taught our people for seven years the up and the down and the how and the why of Christians loving each other. We thought with no effect. And so when I released the anointing and it had all the effect, I thought, ah, well, it wasn't the teaching at all, it's the anointing. I was wrong. I was, I was to figure this out later. It needed both. That, that had been a preparation without me realizing it. And then I thought, yeah, that's what happened with Jesus. He taught them for three years, live like this, love like this. Then the anointing came. So the teaching gives you the doctrine because we've got to have good doctrine here. And it's got to instruct our hearts so that down here we have values. But then when the power comes, guess what? We have the anointings and the revelation and the power to live in accordance with real faith and belief. So we thank God. That's how it works. And um, sandwiched in the middle, the teaching, the anointing in there, early church, 10 days of prayer. Our church, years and years of prayer. So I'm going to pray and release this anointing. I've been places where you sense, oh, this people are going to become something. And this grace will work for them and lift them up. So I'll have time to say, let me pray the prayer and commend you to the grace of God. Uh, Father, this is a good people that you have made. They're yours and precious to you and they're lovely in every way and I thank you for them. But you have plans. You're not wanting them to stay as they are. You're wanting to perfect them. You're wanting to take them up that ladder of love. You're wanting them to find this fullness of Jesus Christ. You're wanting them to find the spirit of sonship and community. And I pray for them. I ask that you would reveal yourself, reveal your face to them. And I ask, Lord, that you'd put your arms all around this 
great company of American brothers and sisters. And you transformed them, O oh God, from one degree of grace to another, and of one degree of glory to another. And lift up their faith from faith to faith. And so let now the Holy Spirit come upon them. This anointing, O Lord, of which we speak, the anointing by which community is built, I place upon them. I receive this from your hand, from the throne of grace. I receive the spirit of understanding. And I place this anointing upon this church, upon its pastors and leaders, and I place this anointing upon the hearts and the minds of every believer and all the little children. And I place this anointing upon your marriages and homes. The spirit of understanding, I place upon you the anointing by which community is built. And in Jesus' name, I release it. I release it to you. I release it into your hearts and into your minds. Lord, I ask, open their eyes. Open the eye of their understanding. Grant this word go deep to the heart. Transform the life of your people. Friends, what I didn't tell you was the Lord told me there were two anointings. He said there is also another anointing by which leaders perceive community. Let me pray for the leaders. Father, I ask that you would grant to all the leadership of this church that grace to understand community, to perceive it, to envision it, to grasp it and hold it by faith and to walk in it and to lead others in it. And in the name of the Lord Jesus, I place upon the leaders of this house and all those who will become leaders the anointing by which leaders perceive community. I release it to you in Jesus' name. And I bless this house. God be with you. The peace of the Lord Jesus rest on you in his holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.